0: DECLASSIFY, verb, meaning to officially declare information or documents to be no longer secret.
1: In the art world, there's always more than what meets the eye. I'm Parker. And I'm Georgia. And this is DECLASSIFIED.
0: We're your hosts here to uncover stories, truths, and other clues to solve the mystery of success in this complex industry.
1: Access lies at the heart of our mission. We amplify as many voices as we can.
0: Featuring artists, collectors, curators, advisors, historians, and entrepreneurs listening as they tell us what it's like to walk in their shoes. Okay, we are crazy excited to welcome today's guest, Elizabeth Smith. She is an accomplished art historian, curator, and the present and first executive director of the Helen Frankenthaler Foundation, which means she gets to work with and among my personal favorite portfolio of paintings in the world every single day.
1: Elizabeth received her undergraduate degree from Barnard and her master's in art history from Columbia. She worked as a curator before becoming a visiting professor at USC, and while teaching in the Public Arts Studies program, she continued her work as a curator. She has published several books and countless award-winning articles on art and architecture, her specialty being post-war American art.
0: Along with written work, she's put together many exhibitions as curator at LA's Museum of Contemporary Art, Chicago's MCA, and the Art Gallery of Ontario. Now she serves as Executive Director of the Helen Frankenthaler Foundation, where she manages um, the artist Philanthropic Foundation.
1: So, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to have you on the podcast, Declassified. How is your day going so far?
2: Thank you for having me here uh, on the podcast. And so far, my day is going great. It's a beautiful day in New York City. You're fortunate. Yeah,
1: I know. We were just talking about how gorgeous the weather is today. Um, So as you know, Declassified is rooted in a single simple question. All of our episodes are titled. um, And the question for today is, why does an artist's legacy matter? But let's break it up a bit. Uh, George and I both know who Helen Frankenthaler is, but we'd love for you to please take a quick minute to give our audience a brief elevator pitch on who Helen Frankenthaler is. We'll come back to her later, so it can be a high level brief kind of that elevator pitch for us.
2: Okay, so for those who don't know who Helen Frankenthaler is, she is one of the major artists of the mid to late 20th century. She's an abstract painter, She always painted abstractly over her almost 60 years of practice, and she came of age in the period of abstract expressionism. So that was her grounding. And from there, she developed, she continued to develop an abstract language of painting over several decades that continued to evolve and grow. Uh, She was recognized quite early in her career as a significant figure, and she's one of the few women artists of that time who enjoyed that kind of recognition and professional success from an early age throughout her, um, the rest of her uh, decades of her career. So I'm delighted to be able to work with that legacy as director of the Helen Frankenthaler Foundation.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely incredible legacy to work with.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, as I said before, she's my favorite painter. I'm going to keep saying that as we keep going along because um, her works are just so beautiful. I think her way with color and, um, I mean, non-existent line but um, overlapping shapes is just so beautiful. Um, so could you tell us the difference between those two things, the estate and the foundation, and then why
2: should or shouldn't their management sort of fall under one organization? In her case... She established um, in the according to the terms of her will, um, her assets would pass into a foundation after her death. And she, she set that up in the 80s. So that when she died, the the you know, the, the works, the assets, everything that she possessed um, became part of her estate. And then the estate passed into the collection of the foundation. So actually things weren't sold. What we were able to obtain in the foundation was a tremendous wealth of artworks that she had held onto uh, over her entire lifetime and a number of other assets, um, her you know, intellectual property, her archives and papers, and her financial assets. So in our case, the estate ended um, at a certain time and then the foundation became active once it received its bequest from the estate. Um, As you mentioned, some organizations do it differently. And um, for instance, I think of the case of Roy Lichtenstein, where there's an estate of Roy Lichtenstein and a Roy Lichtenstein foundation. Um, They're sort of parallel but separate entities, to my understanding. And estates and foundations have similar goals. You know, they're both about um, stewarding the legacy of an artist, but they do so in slightly different ways. Um, some of the ways are are similar and others diverge. I think the biggest difference is that in a, in a foundation, an artist-endowed foundation is a tax-exempt organization. Um, it's a 501c3, um, and uh, at a foundation, we operate for the public benefit with a charitable and philanthropic mission. And a state doesn't need to operate that same way. It doesn't need to serve the public benefit but they're also greatly concerned with you know making sure the legacy of their artist is um is uh, well um sort of overseen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I'm sort of that leads really well into the next question we have which is what are the components of an artist's estate? And I think you, you touched on a little bit of that, sort of her archives and her financial assets. Um, and so of course there's like the actual works of art that are within the foundation, but what else is there? And I think that's this sort of depends on the artist. Um, so maybe you can speak to Helen specifically, but what do people who run the estate or the foundation usually have to work with?
2: Well, I mean, it differs from artist to artist, of course. Um, in Helen Frankenthaler's case, uh, she owned a couple of homes, but she, her will, according to the terms of her will, those were to be sold, and then the the proceeds, the finances from those, would come to the foundation. Some artists don't do it that way; they bequeath their um, their home, their studio, or whatnot, to the foundation, and some foundations operate those as, uh, you know, residency programs for other artists, or they use those properties in some way. We didn't do that just because that's, that's not what Helen wanted. Um, and the beauty of an artist-endowed foundation is that the artist can really determine what they see happening. You know, what, how do they want to be remembered and in what way? Um, and really the best thing they can do once they determine that is to decide who should be in charge. Like who should the board of directors be? to uh, like oversee their foundation or you know if, if it's a trust or something like that too they ha- they have to choose the people they want to be responsible for advancing their legacy and then those people are charged with making the decisions about how to do that um, in Frankenthaler's case we were so fortunate to have a wealth of artworks. Helen kept a lot of her own artworks so we have pieces from her student days until, close to the day she you know, di- died or when she stopped making work. Um, we have works in all of the mediums in which she practiced. So we have this tremendous wealth of material um, to lend, uh, to, to, to eventually to give. I mean, we have a lot of ideas about um, how to continue to steward this legacy. Um, we also were very fortunate to receive a, a massive trove of archives much of which had not been consulted by anyone and it, it's a major research opportunity and since those materials have passed into the foundation we've been able to open them up to scholars and there's so much work still to be done and it was exciting to have that because it's it's really fresh material um yeah
0: yeah so that i have I have fierce poise like on the bookshelf right behind me
2: <laughs> yeah. by
0: Nemrov, who was one of my professors. Yeah.
2: Right. So a, that's I mean, an that's
0: example, for, example of of a scholar sort of moving into the archives that were just sort of recently, I guess, organized or discovered and yeah. writing a beautiful book about, yeah. about her and her
2: life. Yeah. We also um, inherited from the estate Frankenthaler's collection of other artists' work. She oh, had wow. quite a few pieces by artists who were her peers and friends, um, as well as earlier modern artists that she admired and even some pieces by old masters. So there's a pretty interesting collection of things that she had around her hanging in her home or for one reason or another liked and acquired. So we have those. Um, and we also do manage her intellectual property as well, her copyright, um, we, you know, we try to make sure that you know, everything is correct um, we really are, are sticklers about accuracy, and that's you know something that we as a foundation can take um, responsibility for. We wanna make sure things are accurate when they go out there in the world about Frankenthaler's work.
1: Elizabeth, I'm sure you can tell, and everyone else probably, that Georgia might be Frankenthaler's biggest fan west of your office in New York City. Helen Frankenthaler really though hasn't been on my radar until recently, but similarly to Georgia, I love how frankenthaler stains her unprimed canvases and as a professor of mine once described it to me how she allows the work to happen rather than directing the composition and elizabeth you've touched on this a little bit but i think frankenthaler like many of her female peers working in abstract expressionism like lee krasner or alma thomas and even joan mitchell another one of george's favorites have gained a lot more attention over the last few years as everyone is really realizing and even waking up to the lack of scholarship or general awareness that was directed towards these female artists. But circling back to Helen Frankenthaler and where our conversation is grounded today, Elizabeth, I'm curious to know how does Frankenthaler guide your mission and the organization's vision?
2: Yeah, well, the the beauty of how Frankenthaler established her foundation uh, is that she wasn't too specific about what we needed to do. You know, she didn't leave hard and fast guidelines for, for doing things. She kept it pretty open-ended. So, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, she selected the board of trustees who would, who would be in charge of the foundation. Um, and so I think by making that decision and selecting those people, she ensured that her you know her wishes would be carried out but she left them a lot of leeway in order to decide how to do that so one of the first things they did was to hire like hire me um <laughs> uh, well you know actually to get the foundation up and running you know you needed to have a staff so um uh so that was something that happened pretty early on but but you know frankenthaler um, you know unlike certain artists that have um sort of a specific goal or, or, you know, who might want to advance certain kinds of, of, of things. Frankenthaler really wasn't um, so much that way, but we do know enough about her to know that there were certain things she cared about a lot. So for instance, Bennington college, which was her alma mater uh, has become one of our foremost grantees. We supported, we started to support Bennington college right out of the gate as soon as the the foundation became active because we knew that's what Helen Frankenthaler would have wanted. She herself, you know, supported Bennington over the years, and she was even um, on their board of trustees for a period of time. So things like that have guided us. Um, In the early years of our philanthropy, we chose to give to organizations other than Bennington that we knew were important for Frankenthaler or with which... You know she had had some connection or or with which her work had some major connection we've evolved since then but that really did guide some of our early decision making but for the most part we've been pretty free to pursue the goal of stewarding her legacy in the way we feel is best at this moment in time and that's not always the way she herself would have done it you know she had pretty definite ideas about things that uh you know were fine for her but you know, may not be the best way uh, at this time to to steward and advance a legacy.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that, That really speaks to sort of this idea that managing an artist's legacy is one, keeping their own mission intact, but two, doing it in a smart, business savvy way where um, and this leads into my next question. So I'm not going to spoil what I think the answer might be. Um, So I'm going to ask sort of I bet like some of our listeners didn't even know your job existed, which is, uh, is crazy. And so here's like the big why. What does the smart management of an artist's legacy actually do and for whom? So like, what is the point of, of making sure other than sort of like keeping a name intact, um, over time, what's the point of making sure that, um, an artist's legacy stays strong and is, and is grown over time
2: after the artist is gone? Well, I think that, you know, the idea is that a foundation or an estate can serve the same Function, perhaps, uh, in terms of care and attention that the artist themselves would have, would have exercised during their lifetime. So, you know, making sure that um, the work is presented in the best possible ways, making sure that, um, you know, materials about the work or information about the work is, is available, uh, providing access to people is really important. Uh, and in fact, in our case, that's one way we can go beyond what Frankenthaler herself would have done because she didn't, you know, she was quite protective uh, in ways that we aren't necessarily, not that we're not protective because we are, but we, under, we, we see the value of allowing a range of perspectives to, um, you know, shape new interpretations of the artist's practice. So, you know, it, it, it really, it, it's a way to keep the work alive, to keep it relevant and I think the way we define success in an artist and dad foundation is—is is that very issue, you know—is are people find are new people finding the work of interest? Is it of relevance and significance to current generations of artists? Are new curators or, or, or younger, you know, generations um, looking at it? Are they uh, coming to it with fresh eyes? And that's a really important thing, you know, for any artist to think about. Um, I, I think, you know, as artists grow older and they think about what they want to have happen, you know, with all of their, you know, with everything after their death, they, you know, they really need to think about that. You know, how do I, how do I want to be remembered? Um, how, who do I want taking care um, of my work? Um, what are the things that are important to me? You know, what do I want to advance in terms of my own values? Because uh, a, a foundation is a great vehicle for an artist to be able to give back, you know, to, to in, in terms of not just um, uh, the availability of their work, but also uh, if there's giving involved in philanthropy, you know, that's that's something so meaningful um, to the art world or to the recipients of that, of that um, giving.
1: I love your point about how the Frankenthaler Foundation can go beyond what Frankenthaler originally intended by shaping new perspectives and allowing for her work to stay relevant. You said that a foundation is a great vehicle to give back. With 2020 and all the changes that came with and continue to come with COVID-19, I know that the work that the Frankenthaler Foundation is carrying out is really allowing for her legacy to be broadened, whether that be through COVID-19 relief effort grants or digital initiative. So with such a dynamic grant program, I'd really be curious to know, what does your day-to-day look like as a director of the foundation, and what kinds of projects do you work on?
2: Well, one of the things I love about my job is that every day is different, and there's no, you know, sort of set pattern to it. So I guess just for instance, I'll tell you what I did today. Um, I had to be in contact with a couple of museum directors who are interested in, Frankenthaler's work and the possibility of future exhibitions. Uh, I had to check in with our attorney on the progress of a couple of grant agreements that we have underway. Uh, I had a end of the year performance review with one of the staff members here. Um, I reviewed some documents uh, with images of works in our collection in preparation for an upcoming board meeting. Uh, But I'm often also like out in the field and that's a really nice thing. Uh, I try to get out and see as many exhibitions as possible so I can stay current with what's happening in the art world. I try to visit you know our grantees. Um, I travel quite a bit or and I, well I used to travel quite a bit and I look forward to resuming that activity um, more and more as time goes on because that's really important. Um, for instance if we want to make a loan of work from our collection to a museum, uh, or if we're thinking about a gift of work, it's really important to go to the place so that we understand, you know, what else do they have in their collection? How is it presented? Um, How would a a gift or a loan from our collection, you know, hold up in, in that context? And how would Frankenthaler's work best be presented there? And it's really hard to make those kinds of decisions without actually being somewhere and seeing the context and the artwork. So that's that's a big aspect of what I have done in the past and what I hope I'll continue to do. Um, I also enjoy writing as much as I can about Frankenthaler and I usually say yes to every you know opportunity that comes my way uh, and um, to speak about her work. So I consider my job a bit of public relations for um for the foundation for the artist sort of being like the the face I, i'm not the only one of course but um I, you know i'm often the one that's like out there in in the art world um carrying the frankenthaler message and that's something i really enjoy hmm.
1: absolutely that's so and, wonderful i mean not to make a joke but I feel like today all I've done is had breakfast. So your, your day sounds a lot more exciting <laughs> <Yeah>. than mine.
0: <laughs> it really does. I mean, it's so great that you're able to do such a large diversity of, I mean, just practical skills and people you're in contact with every day. And I also love that you are so committed to understanding the landscape of the current art world, because I think, um, obviously Frankenthaler, uh, is no longer alive no longer making work but you're like um how you place relevancy in like the current landscape of her work and how you're putting them in different places and um spreading her message today to like a younger generation i think that's so interesting and helpful and i also think it's a mark of um innovation in a foundation because i'm not sure that every artist's legacy is sort of managed in that way um in like such a modern context so that's really interesting to hear um and then, I mean, this sort of connects to what Parker just asked. But what other roles exist at Frankenthaler? So, like, who do you manage? Who works under you? Um, and what are the other uh, the other jobs instead of uh, or like uh, in addition to being sort of the face or the intermediary between Frankenthaler's works and the
2: world? Well, we're a very small organization. We have, I believe, ten full time employees, uh, and we have a couple, you know, part time. Employees as well. We're, we're structured, though, even though we're very small, because we have different um, areas of activity. So we have a, a collections area, archives. We have catalog raisonne, and we have administration. And administration also encompasses um, philanthropy as well as you know finance, HR, all that sort of stuff. Um, I'm the administrative side of things with one other person. Um, our director of collections reports to me, she actually worked with Helen Frankenthaler for many years. So she has great knowledge of the artwork, the artist, you know, she has all the, the stories, all the, right. the, the, the values. backstory she of everything. Them. And, you know, she's got a tremendous um, understanding of the nuances of the work. Um, so she manages that collection The archivist also uh, reports to me directly. She oversees all of the, you know, all of those research materials that we inherited from the artist's estate and the library. Um, The director of the Catalogue raisonné project reports to me as well. And he manages a, you know, a team of researchers. And let's see, um, also our um, images, Rights and Digital Assets Manager reports to me. That's a fairly new position at the foundation. Mm-hmm. We've just had it for about a year, and it's been super important. Um, we get a lot, a lot of requests for images of Frankenthaler's work, and there are more and more publications that, you know, seem to want to illustrate her work.
0: Guess that's a good sign. <laughs> uh, no, it's,
2: it's absolutely yeah. great. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So then with all of these moving pieces and teams and being a small team with collections and archive, administration, catalog, resume, when you come together as a group and I guess together with your board, how do you really kind of strategically plan and ideate for the future, um, especially given COVID and all the changes that have happened with that?
2: Um, that's such a good question. And I'm not sure there's a hard and fast answer to it because one of the, the beauties of our organization Our small organization is that we've been able to evolve Um, in, in the past eight years, you know, with their, the foundation didn't really exist and it's, you know, we had no website, we had no location, we had no, we had nothing really except the items that we had received as a, as a bequest from the estate. So initially... Um, you know, we had to build our infrastructure. That was the most important thing. And I remember coming into this job and doing a 30-day, a 60-day, and a 90-day plan. And that was the way we were able to sort of attend to the most immediate priorities. But after, you know, that time, then, of course, you have to start thinking more longer term and strategically. So we developed sort of a a three-year plan to sort of to try to get ourselves you know sort of stabilized um and now here we are at um eight years out we have a plan we have a strategic plan that's been developed with the board together with the board that takes us out into maybe 2020 uh 2030 or a little bit beyond that so about 10 years out and In order to make that plan, we had to establish our key artistic goals. So what are those goals? Well, we want to see a major retrospective of Helen Frankenthaler's work take place. There hasn't been one since 1989. That was the last one that was, you know, a large um, showing of a significant body of her work. We also want to see a biography written. Alex Nemirov's book was fantastic, but it only treats the 50s. Helen Frankenthaler lived and worked until the early 2000s, you know. So there's there's a whole life to be examined there. We have the archives and research materials for that. We want to complete a catalog raisonné. That's underway, but it's going to take a while. Those things always take a really long time. And um, what else do we want to see happen? Um, well, our collection. So after the retrospective, what do we want? to see happen with our collection. Well, we would like to place important works in important collections, you know, whether as gifts or um, through sale or some combination thereof. So those goals can guide our activities over the next decade. And, and for each one, there's a clearly defined set of steps that we can take. Now they shift and evolve sometimes, but we know what they are and we can, uh, we can pursue them all uh, simultaneously. So with that structure in place, uh, it gives us a good framework within which to work and also to be responsive for the things that come up that nobody can foresee. COVID, you know, who knew? None of I mean, just what it's done to our world has just been so astonishing. But when, when it kicked in for us, um, it caused us to think about our, well, a lot of our work differently because we knew some things had to go on hold. We just couldn't do certain things for a while other things we could do. Um, but our giving changed. So we became involved in COVID relief giving to artists and arts organizations. That was something, you know, what we, we would never have occurred to us to do any such giving, I think, if something like COVID hadn't happened. Um, and then from there, we began to be interested in more kinds of socially... Um, necessary or socially urgent giving. And so that's led us most recently into climate change giving uh, for arts organizations. And that's been like a really interesting path for us to follow. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we have a structure and a plan, but I think one of the best things about what we do is that we can be flexible. We can be responsive. Um, you know, we can react quickly because we only have mm-hmm. we have a very small board um, I can get them to respond to something like the same day if necessary. Oh, Not always. Sometimes things take <laughs> months to get consensus around. But other times, you know, it doesn't. And, and you can get something done really, really quickly and take action very quickly. So that's mm. that's very exciting. Yeah,
1: Absolutely. Being, being dynamic. You're able to pivot mm-hmm. and move and, and stay relevant. Mm-hmm. I think it's super important with all those changes.
0: Yeah. And something you said just reminded me of a question that I had that, um, is like kind of a mini one before we move on to the next big question. But so how much say, or how much do you pay attention to sort of like the secondary movement of Helen's works? So say like one museum owns a piece and they sell it to another or a private collection decides to put one of their pieces, um, on display in a museum somewhere at the Cantor at Stanford, for example, there's two pieces that I think came from a private collection that are on display here. So how much, I mean, of course it's, way too much to track all of that at once, but do you, um, do you all have any say in when those things happen? Um, or do you, I mean, I'm sure you pay attention, but how much is that involved in, in your daily?
2: Um, we do try to pay attention, um, not just for our, you know, own information, um, but also, uh, for our catalog raisonne, that's really important for them to know where things are, uh, or if something changes hands, that's really important because they're trying to you know, keep a, a record um, of all the works the Frankenthaler made. So they're trying to track things as thoroughly as possible. It's a big job. There's, you know, she was a prolific artist. There's a lot of work out there. Um, so we, yes, so, so we pay attention. And, but do we have a say in that? Um, not necessarily. Um, if we don't own something, you know, we can try to exert influence of some kind, but we can't really, you know, there's nothing we can really do about it. Um, If a collector, you know, decides to sell a work, you know, that's their, you know, it's their prerogative to do so. Um, If a museum deaccessions a work, that never makes us happy. Um, But, you know, we understand that museums have the, you know, it's possible for them to deaccession on occasion and um, that that's permitted. So you know we just we, we just try to monitor what's going on um, and that's you know sort of I, th- I think the best we can do
0: mm-hmm. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I imagine if some if a work were sold at auction or something it would probably I mean that would be a big deal um, and you guys would pay attention I'm sure I, in any in any of these situations it makes, anything just, I mean, if, if you're dealing with her legacy, anything that's happening in present day, of course
2: has some impact on that. Right. Um, auction, by the way, so- a lot of, I should just mention that, um, cause right now mm-hmm. there are auctions going on this week and mm-hmm. Frankenthaler's work is sold fairly frequently at auction. Um, mm-hmm. people put, you know, private collectors put her work up at auction. We've seen like more and more instances of that so and auctions are so public so it's actually yep. a great way to know what's out there it keeps you know, I, I guess yeah. <laughs> where it gets more mysterious are the you know the sales that happen through private galleries that we don't mm-hmm. know about or that it's harder for anybody to you know to know about without doing a lot mm-hmm. of digging yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense
0: Um, okay. So transitioning now to your own career, which I'm so excited to hear about. So how did you get here? Tell us about your transition from academia to curation to philanthropy now. Um, and like, how did all of these roles really inform each other? And how do you think you ended up where you are today?
2: Well, um, I, uh, studied art history Uh, I got my BA from Barnard and my MA from Columbia, and I was in the PhD program there working towards my doctorate, had finished all my coursework, and then I got a job working at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, which was just sort of getting off the ground at the time. Uh, I was fortunate to get a job as an assistant curator, and that was a great job. So I left school. I intended to finish my PhD, but I, I didn't. So because I got, once I started working, I just got very absorbed in it and just, you know, kept that going. So um, I stayed in Los Angeles for a number of years working at LA MoCA, which was an absolutely fantastic experience then, because it was a, you know, a new institution. It was a great place, very experimental. And I, you know, sort of, I guess, rose up the ranks there and then Later on, I was offered a job as the chief curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. So I moved to Chicago, had a very different and also wonderful experience there, and then became their deputy director for programs as well as chief curator. Um, I also worked for a few years in Toronto at the Art Gallery of Ontario, which is a very different museum. You know, the other two were contemporary art. AGO is a much larger and more encyclopedic institution. So that, to me, was a real learning opportunity because I'd never been at such a big place. And my role there was um, uh, Director of Curatorial Affairs. So it was very administrative. I got to do some some curating too, but it was mostly administrative. And it really taught me a lot about how to run things so that when the Frankenthaler Foundation came calling, you know, doing a search for their founding director, I felt like I knew how to run something, you know? And I, I was excited about the idea of founding something, you know, doing a startup kind of organization that was small, like building a small organization. And uh, it was much, it was a very attractive proposition to me at the time having been in such a large kind of bureaucratic institution like, um, like the Art Gallery of Ontario. So that's how I ended up here. I never would have foreseen it. You know, if somebody had asked me years ago, you know, do you want to work in a foundation and an artist and dad foundation, I would have said, no, I'm a museum person. I, you know, that's, that's what I do. Um, but with Frankenthaler, um, once I thought more about the opportunity and once I get to know more about the artist's work, it, I, I began to, you know, say to myself, you know, could I be a passionate advocate for this artist? Because that's what you have to be. If you're going to associate yourself with a single artist, you have to be able to embrace their work. And I mean, you don't have to love it or love every aspect of it, but you need to, you know, realize its cultural value. And I felt that I could do that. And I, I found that the more I saw Frankenthaler's work, the, the higher regard, you know, I held it in and she was not an artist that I had worked with previously. She was not somebody who'd really been in my, you know, uh, you know, been top of mind for me at all. So, um, I felt I would learn a lot by doing this job. And indeed I have, so it's it, it really been like a, a terrific um, opportunity. And the past eight years have gone by really quickly. I You know, it's hard to believe it's been that long. Yeah.
1: That's exciting. Again, I'm going to throw in a little mini question. In your research and kind of getting to know Frankenthaler and understanding her, how connected today do you feel to Helen and her work?
2: Oh, well, I feel very connected to her today. Um, unlike my colleague that I mentioned to you earlier, who worked with Helen and knew her well, I never met her. You know, I had no personal interaction with her, but having studied her work for so long, having read so many of her statements, having listened to her voice on, you know, um, taped, you know, taped interviews and um, seen her in the couple of small films, you know, that show her making a painting or um, I feel like I know her. And, you know, as I mentioned, I, I think the work is really, really important. And some of the work that's lesser known is also really, really important. And part of our goal is to make that lesser known work better known because we want others to, you know, feel the same way we do about it. So we're always eager to get the work out there. Um I should just mention something that I probably should have said earlier, but didn't, which is that when I started this job, uh, there were no works by Helen Frankenthaler on view in any major New York museum, even though all of them own numerous examples. So I thought, wow, why is that? You know, that's not good. Subsequently, all of those museums have put their, their paintings up on the walls, sometimes multiple times. So I like to think that's not just the zeitgeist, but that it's somehow related to our work in, you know, keeping Frankenthaler's name out there, um, you know, getting her works out into the world, assisting people that want to publish um, or reproduce images of her work. I like to think some of that comes from our activity, but it's a real, um, like, I feel it's like a definition of success or our success in stewarding her legacy, appropriately. So I'm, you know, it's been really gratifying to be able to have a hand in that.
1: Well, it's definitely, I think, a reflection of all of the hard work you have put in and your team has put into kind of building her legacy. And in thinking about being a leader and speaking about your your experience prior to where you are now, Georgia and I are graduating this spring from college, both students of art history, We'd be curious to know what type of education is required for a job like yours. Is that an MA, a BA, a PhD?
2: Um, that's a really good question. Uh, I think people that that hold my role in artist endowed foundations come from many different backgrounds. Some of us, like me, come out of the museum world, and you know, for those of us who do, we generally have like at least a master's. Some people have PhDs. Um, there are a number of artist-endowed foundation directors who don't come from the museum world, maybe they come from like the studio art side of things, and maybe they even worked with the artist, you know, so they have that that, that direct knowledge. Um, So, you know, we do see people from a sort of across the spectrum um, in the role of of director at an artist foundation, but there are, you know, many um, sort of subdivisions within each foundation. And I would, you know, I would say that it kind of mirrors the structure of the museum world a little bit. You know, collection management, research, scholarship, um, you know, digital stuff, um, philanthropy. Uh, And in some cases, you know, the the uh, like programs, Um, we actually were very active with programs before COVID. I hope you will be again. So educational programs, residencies, um, things of that nature. So, you know, I think for most some of those fields, it is desirable to have at least a BA and, you know, an, an MA or MFA for sure, um, especially if you're like in a more specialized like research area. Um, but, it, yeah, I mean, it, but it's fluid is, is, I guess, what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah. That's good to hear, and I think obviously you can come in. It seems like you can come in sort of at different levels, and then return to more education if it sort of makes sense for the trajectory that you're mm-hmm. going. And I feel like that's what most people say. Right. But that's it's good to hear. Um, so now I'm gonna ask a kind of self motivated question. Um, as I said in the intro, Helen Frankenthaler is my favorite artist of all time. Um, and listeners, now if you don't know her, you do. You're welcome. Please look at her pieces. It's my background on my computer, has been for many years. I switch works like depending on the month. Um so my question is can I turn my apartment into a temporary storage facility for the work? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But when I move to New York I may I may come knocking. Um no my real question is what is the most rewarding and then the most challenging part of taking care of her work?
2: So most rewarding um... I would say that seeing how her work is continuing to inspire current artists is super rewarding. I find that like so exciting because we want to see the work being kept alive and we want to see Frankenthaler's influence as a continuing one, as a vital one. So. We're fortunate in that a number of artists in recent years have spoken eloquently about Frankenthaler's impact on their work. They have talked about like her painting, you know, what, how, how does their painting, or in what way does her painting speak to them? In what way do they see her grappling with, with painterly and artistic problems and solving them or, or attacking them or approaching them in brilliant ways that they feel they can also learn from? Um, that, to me, is amazing. So, And just like to name a few of those artists who have recently, you know, engaged with Frankenthaler. They include Amy Silman, um, Dominique Gonzalez-Forster, um, Rodney McMillian, um, who else? Um, Mary Weatherford, Katerina Grossa, um, and, and more. Uh, and it's just, you know, that's just like really, really gratifying. Um, even... Um, an artist named um, Cynthia Denio, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, um, has done a number of paintings where she's actually used images of Helen Frankenthaler at work as part of her own paintings. So you know, oh, I
0: think I've seen
2: those. you may you may have yeah. seen these. I mean, I'm quite fascinated by them. I mean, she mm-hmm. doesn't use just Frankenthaler. I mean, she uses images of a lot of a lot of different people. But um, mm-hmm. there's something also about Helen Frankenthaler as a as a phenomenon that I think is attractive to people, especially women artists, but not only women artists, um, I think they see Frankenthaler as kind of a hero. You know, she's someone that did like, you know, she had success. She was a big presence as a woman at that time. She encountered a lot of, you know, uh, hardship and roadblocks, but she persevered and she, you know, rose above it and. There's something about those images of her making a painting that are really compelling to people. So I find that super rewarding. Um, And as a curator, when I worked as a curator, I always really liked the relationship between, you know, what current artists were thinking about and doing and um, art history. I always thought that was like a really, you know, sort of powerful thread and and point of connection. So that is fantastic for me. I think you also asked about what's the most challenging. Challenging,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, That's a hard one. I mean, I think that, I mean, this sounds kind of crazy, but we have a large collection. We have a voluminous collection. And trying to really um, make the best decisions about what we should do with that collection is really challenging. You wouldn't think it would be, but it is. Because it has, to, we have to do like a lot of research, um, in order to even begin to to pursue that. We have to understand, you know, what just in terms of museums, we have to understand what museums out there have which works by Helen Frankenthaler already. So, you know, we have to kind of keep tabs on that, and it changes, right? Because people make gifts to museums, or um, and then we have to think about well you know what would make sense um how does it make sense for us to think about uh, placing works in these different contexts do we think about museums that don't have any work of helen frankenthaler uh do we think about uh helping museums who already do have work expand the representation of her work and if so with what pieces like how did i mean it all comes down to the specifics of each individual situation that's something i find fascinating because I love museum collections and thinking about museums, but it's challenging, and it's more challenging than I thought it would be. I didn't really realize, you know, the nuances of what would be involved.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But it's a good problem. It's almost to like have. you need,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's almost like you need a world map and like tiny little printouts of her pieces.
2: <laughs> you can move I'll them all around. That kind of helps. Yeah, we we have a version of that. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's the right way to do it. No, and I, mm-hmm. you were speaking earlier just about. Personality and who she is, and I encourage anyone listening to or everyone listening to just Google Helen Frankenthaler, click on images on Google, and then see her standing in front of her artwork to understand both her personality, who she is, her essence in in her studio or in a show. I think there's some pretty just life-filled pictures that you can mm-hmm. look
2: at. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also encourage people to go onto our website, the Frankenthaler Absolutely. Foundation website. Um, and to go into our section um, of media, as we call it, because there we have, um, we have archived like the past few years of um, press that's come yeah. out about her work. There are some great, like really, really interesting um, pieces, you know, written pieces to read mm-hmm. there. Um, we have an audio section where you can hear either, um, you know, Frankenthaler herself speaking about something. Um, Or you can hear recordings um, of, you know, more recent commentators about her work. And then we have a video section where we have the same, you know, kinds of things. So that's, we we try to keep that, like, updated with the most, um, you know, interesting and recent examples.
1: Mm. Absolutely. Um, So one very practical question we have, again, George and I thinking about our futures and all the exciting possibilities that come into this, industry in this space. Um, Yeah. So as our practical question, what advice do you have for young professionals trying to break into this field right now or enter?
2: Well, I would say I mean, not just in terms of artist and dad foundations, but in terms of any, you know, any area of the art world. Mm -hmm. Um, I encourage I, I completely encourage like, you know, internships, most of which are paid these days, fortunately, I completely encourage that because it gives you a way, you know, to, to, to learn, um, about the particular organization to get a sense of if it is or is not right for you in terms of a future direction. And, and most importantly, um, it gives you the ability to make, um, contacts. And I think that is so important. And if you make a good impression during your internship, then, you know, the, the, the people that you're interning with or should be always, they usually are, um, like happy to assist, you know, with recommendations or with keeping you in mind for opportunities that come up. Um, in the art world and probably in any field, but I, you know, I know the art world best, um, people do turn to others for recommendations. You know, if you, you know, if you have a job opening, you know, you might contact um, a colleague and ask if they know anybody or that kind of thing. So you know, it, I think I can't emphasize enough how important it is to ha- like to make those contacts that you can only really make through getting some kind of work experience. And I think internships are a great way to go. I never had an internship when I was, you know, in school or even coming out of school, just because I, I it was a different time. And I was really fortunate to go like straight into a mus- assistant curator job at a museum, but that's because the museum was just getting started. <laughs> So um, today it's so much more competitive, as you know. You know, there are so many people out there that want to be involved in the art world. Um, but I think getting your foot in the door is the thing to do. So whatever way you can do it, um, or, you know, also, if in, I mean, even just like, you know, the informational interview approach, I think this really can be really valuable. I think usually, you know, if there's somebody you admire, if there's somebody you want to meet and talk to, especially through Zoom these days or through video People are usually pretty willing to do it, I think, and that's also a very good way to pick somebody's brain, um, ask for advice and just learn something, and maybe to make a contact. So those are the things I, I you know I highly suggest. And And I should also I can't fail to also say um, if you do approach somebody about something like that and they give their time to you, write and thank them immediately as soon as possible. I, you know, a lot of people forget to do that and um, it doesn't make a great impression. Um, Whereas those who are, you know, who take that time to, to, you know, to reach out and say, thanks, that, that does make a good impression. Yeah. As I'm sure you all know, but I just, you know, I I just have to mention it for anyone who's Mm listening. Very good reminder. Yeah.
1: One of the best pieces of advice I think have ever been given, similar to what you just shared, Elizabeth, is to write an email of gratitude after receiving help, followed by a handwritten card to thank someone for their time and support. So Declassified has a signature question that we ask each guest that comes onto the pod. Our signature question is, if you could have any job in the art world, create a job that doesn't exist, or borrow someone else's job, what job would you have?
2: Well, that's such a good question. Um, I used to think that I would like to be the director of a museum that I admire, you know, and of course there are many great ones out there. However, in recent years I've changed my thinking about that because I, you know, I, I see the pressures that a lot of museum directors are going through, especially in recent years. I'm, I'm not really interested in being a museum director anymore because of the, the tremendous pressures that, um, people in those roles face these days. Mm -hmm. Instead, I find I really enjoy the world of philanthropy um, and the foundation world. But if I were to to change from the role I currently have, there's another sort of public service related uh, cultural job that I have always thought would be like super interesting. If I ever had the opportunity to be the, the head of the National Endowment for the Arts, Oh, I would find that job. to be super interesting. Um, you know, that person has to have, uh, you know, the uh, the oversight or the overview of what's going on in the arts, not just visual arts, but I think, I think, you know, in all the arts mm-hmm. throughout the country. Mm-hmm. And I think that sounds super interesting. And you have to be an advocate for the arts. Um, the The challenge of that, of course, would be that you also have to report to, um, I guess, to the government uh, yeah. Yeah. And the resources you're given are not that great. They're not what they should mm-hmm. be.
1: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm.
2: it would be so interesting to think about ways to augment that. You know, are there creative public-private partnerships that could be developed? Uh, are there ways that the the um, the resources of the Artist Endowed Foundation community, for instance, could be harnessed to support uh, or to augment the work of? let's say the national endowment for the arts i mean i'm sure other people Mm. have had these you know questions and explored these issues but to me that would be sort of a fascinating challenge to pursue if i had you know if i were in the position to to um take on a dream job so um anyway that's that's sort of what (laughs) it brings to my mind um I think that would be super interesting and and kind of exciting, probably frustrating too, but everything is. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, That's part of the
0: beauty of it. I think. Um, well, wow, Elizabeth, thank you so, so much for joining us today. We're so grateful, um, that you are here with us. And I just feel like I've learned so much in the past, what, 50 minutes. Um, and I just can't wait for our listeners to get all this wisdom too. So, Speaking of you listeners, thank you so much for tuning in today.
1: Now, Miss Steele George's line. Speaking of you lovely listeners, we'll be back next week with another episode. But before we conclude, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for spending an hour of your day with us. We are so beyond grateful for your insight and earnest responses to our questions. To everyone listening, please check out frankenthalerfoundation.org to continue to learn more about the incredible legacy of Frankenthaler as well as see all the hard and meaningful work Elizabeth and her team continue to do. Now, please follow our Instagram at declassified.pod. Check out our website declassified-pod.com to gain access to a summary of the episode with potentially potentially unfamiliar words explained and links to the galleries, museums, and all those fun words we talked about explained. And finally, please, 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 please subscribe to our podcast on your preferred streaming platform so you can get notifications when new episodes air. Thank you so much and see you next time.